Hi, and welcome to the Silver Screen Queens podcast. Every week we watch a movie and sit down here to talk about it. I'm Katie. I'm Mel. And we're your hosts. This week we watched Saving Mr. Banks, directed by John Lee Hancock and released in 2013. Okay, and for the plot summary, I'm going to give you the plot summary from the Disney press release. When Walt Disney's daughters begged him to make a movie of their favourite book, P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins, he made them a promise, one that he didn't realise would take 20 years to keep. In his quest to obtain the rights, Walt comes up against a curmudgeonly, uncompromising writer who has absolutely no intention of letting her beloved magical nanny get mauled by the Hollywood machine. But as the books stop selling and money grows short, Travis reluctantly agrees to go to Los Angeles to hear Disney's plan for the adaptation. For those two short weeks in 1961, Walt Disney pulls out all the stops. Armed with imaginative storyboards and chirpy songs from the talented Sherman Brothers, Walt launches an all-out onslaught on P.L. Travers, but the prickly author doesn't budge. He soon begins to watch helplessly as Travers becomes increasingly Im immovable, and the rights begin to move further away from his grasp. It is only when he reaches into his own childhood that Walt discovers the truth about the ghosts that haunt her, and together they set Mary Poppins free to ultimately make one of the most endearing films in cinematic history. God bless the Disney press office and their commitment to brand. I know, that was well, very pro-Disney, wasn't um, it? Yeah, that didn't... I mean, there's nothing in there that's particularly no, untrue. None of it is incorrect or untrue. It's just very much, very much they make it sound like it's the story of Walt Disney when really it's the story of P.L. Travers. Yeah, I mean, she is the core of the movie and she's the main character. We follow mm -hmm. her through the whole thing. Just a, a bit of background because for some reason I went down an internet rabbit hole last night regarding P.L. Travers, she, this uh, was a co-production that came out of Australia um, because, uh, as we find out in the movie, P.L. Travers was born of all places in rural Queensland mm. and uh, went on to become this very posh lady that we see in this film. So there was a, uh, Australia has quite a bit of material on her and there was a biographer here who written a book. And so an Australian screenwriter, uh, Sue something, Sue Smith, who's an Australian TV writer, was commissioned to write the screenplay and she wrote one. And then it ended up being a collaboration with Kelly Marcel, who's a British uh, screenwriter and author. And they took it to Disney, who had to either do it or kill it, mm -hmm. is the background on this. And so they decided to do it and I see. do it in their way. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. So the movie is, I don't know, I enjoyed it, mm. but I felt like there was something awkward about it. Like, I felt like the whole time I was watching it, I felt like, the princess in The Princess and the Pea, where there's just like mattresses and mattresses, but she can still feel the pea underneath. That's kind of what I felt like. Like there was all these layers of sentimentality and cheese and soft, squishy happiness, but there was something underneath that wasn't maybe in the movie, but you could tell there was something there. Yes. And that's how I felt. And there's also this kind of sense of like, I wrote both these things in my review, but I thought they were mm. accurate. Um, you know, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where there's the flashback with River Phoenix and it explains absolutely everything about his entire life yes. in one train ride? Yes. That's what the flashbacks were like. Mm. They were like, this is exactly why P.L. Travers is the way she is now in like a couple of months of her childhood. This yeah. is completely everything that ever contributed to how she is. Yeah, I felt a little emotionally manipulated by that stuff. Yeah. And that was kind of, yeah, it, it was, there's a lot of convenience in this. Yes. About retelling, because of course the moral of the whole story is that P.L. Travers had a fairly traumatic childhood in rural Queensland with a dad who drank and 
who died and her mother who was mentally ill and suicidal. And at one point, a great aunt swept in and helped out the family, but she couldn't obviously save them in the way that Mary Poppins managed to save the family. And the whole idea is that when you retell a story, you rewrite it with a happy ending in order to recover from your psychological trauma. And that's the basis of the whole thing. Which is, seems to be kind of what they did with making this movie. Yeah. <laughs> because, um, yeah, uh, there's actually my favourite part of the whole movie, apart from the um, the let's go fly a kite scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Mm. My favourite part of the whole movie comes in the credit sequence when you hear a tape of the actual P.L. Travers mm. talking about it. That stuff was terrific to me. That was gold. There's 39 hours of those tapes. Yeah. And uh, Emma Thompson and the writers and everyone else had full access to it. Mm. Uh, yeah, she's. it's so interesting. This character, this person, P.L. Travers, is extremely interesting in real life. And in the film, yeah, it comes across like she's um, possibly some kind of social disability suffering grump. Mm. But I think the real story is quite complicated. Okay. I did a little bit of reading about her, but I'm in, by no means I've any kind of expert. But by all accounts, she's not a very nice person. As so, she's she, yeah extremely she passionate mm. about the work that she's done. But then she's also incredibly arrogant. Like particular, insists on a particular way of being addressed by a title that isn't even hers, or you know, in a name that isn't actually hers. And she has very specific tastes about tea and properness and how English should sound. And and you can sort of understand that, but at the same time, sometimes she's just plain mean to people. Yeah, with with regards to being addressed a certain way, and and there are other things as well. Um, I felt like she's a woman who got a lot of disrespect and therefore demands it. Yes, and there's this re that was a sense that I got a really strongly right at the beginning of the film, where everybody is like they keep telling talking to her however they want to talk to her, and I. <laughs> I know it's my own perspective, but I feel like that's partly because she was a woman and a writer yeah. in this kind of yeah. um, and a bohemian world that one she at was that. in. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so and she she was mm -hmm. a lot of it. Like when Walt, whenever Walt Disney would grab her and like mm. touch her and stuff, I was just like, she obviously doesn't like it. Stop doing it. And when they call her Pam, she sees it as a sign of disrespect. Yeah. And so like. You know, if in order to show respect for her, surely you could just call her by the name right. she wanted to be called it, exactly. by. Exactly. Um, surely you hmm. could just like stop grabbing her whenever you felt like yeah. it. No, I, I actually agree with that. Like the the thing about that was that yeah. like when she was mean, I can understand standing up to her. And I thought yep. that um BJ Novak's character, I quite liked him because he often stood up to her while everybody else was just sort of pandering. Right. Um, and that was really kind of a I I, I really liked the idea of getting to see how we deal with people in a work situation that we absolutely cannot get along with like mm. there's no common ground she absolutely won't give in there's no um what's the word that i'm looking for when you cooperate uh, but that's like common ground or a uh, collaboration yeah there's yep. no collaboration there it's mm -hmm. just her way and she refuses to see and they are talented and they have beautiful songs i mean this mm. songs of mary poppins are just gorgeous songs yeah um I will stand by her. Dick Van Dyke is not one of the greats. He is I'm one of the sure. greats, but that accent is so bad. But everybody knows that. Like that was that was that got some of the biggest laughs in the cinema. Yeah. And she's like, "Oh, not Dick Van Dyke." And well, of course not. He's terrible. We know that. But he isn't terrible. He's not he's terrible. He's that just has a terrible accent. Yeah, yeah. He's amazing. I mean, his he he can still dance. He's like ninety. Mm. He's a. I I have full respect for Dick Van Dyke. However, you know, yeah, obviously that accent was terrible. But you know, well, there's yeah, certain things that she the, does where it. She does just go like tip into mean territory, but other things that she does, I can kind of understand. And obviously, 
she has this attachment to the characters where she absolutely will not let them go and that's part of why she's being so difficult all the time yeah. is she's trying to find reasons not to trust these people. Mm, yes. Um, and then they finally win her over with Let's Go Fly a Kite, which just I was like sitting there like giggling like a fool through the whole thing because watching Bradley Whitford, surprise Bradley Whitford, who I didn't know was in this movie and made me so See, happy. You were gig yeah, you were giggling and I was bawling. Crying. I was crying, yeah. Well, because it was just yeah watching him like dancing and jumping so, and mm, and all that. Bradley sort of Whitford stuff. plays the he's introduced the as script the screenwriter writer, and yeah. he's also the storyboard artist. Don de something. Uh, Don I wrote it. Degrati. He is fantastic. He's so great. He just gets into every character. He has to act. He sings. He dances. He yeah. does all the accents. He's just so great. I didn't know he had these talents. Yeah, it was so much fun to see him in this role. I really enjoyed it, and I liked. Jason Schwartzman and B.J. Novak, they mm -hmm. weren't given that much to do. No. But what they did, they did well. And they looked great because of the sort of, you know, early 60s stylings of yeah. everybody. They looked terrific. But there was this kind of um, – that stuff was most the most fun for me, just mm -hmm. watching those scenes of them trying to get along with her and her refusing and then them finally winning her over. All of that was terrific. Mm. The flashbacks, some of it was good. The little girl was terrific. Yeah. Rachel Griffiths was basically the saving grace of those flashbacks. Ruth Wilson tried. See, I didn't know. I, and this is a testament to Ruth Wilson, I didn't know she wasn't Australian. Really? Yeah, I did not know that. I didn't know who the actress was. I was like, that looks like um, Sigrid Thornton, but it obviously would be too old, young to be Sigrid Thornton. I thought it was like a daughter or something. I did not know. The accent was wrong for the time she was playing, but for an Australian accent, especially a person from Queensland, that was dead on. Oh, I didn't like it. <laughs> mm. Obviously, like I, I didn't, didn't think know. that she was that she sounded. There were a lot of like some lines came across as very like broad Australian, and some lines came across as just not Australian at all. Especially little words and stuff. And I was like, mm. see, see, I didn't notice that. But what I thought was it was not quite right for the kind of person that she was. Yeah, and especially not quite right because because I went and looked up the background because. Colin Farrell was doing this kind of weird English-Irish hybrid of an accent. Mm. So I went and looked up and he's meant to be an English immigrant. So that actually makes sense for the character. The character had emigrated. But I looked up at the bio of the mother and she was the – well, obviously she was from a very good family. You can see that when you see her sister, uh, mm. Rachel Griffiths. She's the niece of a Queensland premier. She would not have spoken in that broad of an accent, especially not, not in that day and age. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, Australian accents, we're – well – I was going to say we're quite – we're not, actually. I'm a bit posh. Um, but we're – nowadays we're a lot more hybrid because we are exposed to so much American and English television and stuff. But – and in the 50s, people were really, really broad. But around the 1910s, it was still a stigma to have, have like, convict heritage. And there was a whole – there's a whole lot of stigma that's cultural cringe that is st we still have in our psyche because I know because I – just spouted a whole lot of it off to you when we got home from the movie last night about how it's really embarrassing to be Australian. But back then there was a real, like, being English was the only way to be proper and middle class and if you aspired to anything, you changed your accent so it was a bit posher. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, all that stigma about being Australian and stuff, like, obviously from yeah. the conversation we had last night, I don't get. I mean, I just sort of... Yeah, see, yeah, because you, you have the opportunity to not live here for a big stretches of time, this whole like uh, real small-mindedness of the place that really you really only understand when you leave, of course, but 
there's something about living so far away from everything where if you really want to be successful at something, you do have to leave. A lot of what you do in Australia, a lot of even in academia, I think you leave. You go to London, that's where you prove yourself, or you go to the US and you prove yourself. Mm. Mm. It's uh, interesting. It just doesn't I don't know. It it yeah. didn't I mean, ever it, occur to me that anybody would be particularly ashamed of being Australian. I think that's general I think it's more about who she was rather than well, the, see, that's what I mean. And like, that's the thing. There's, it depends there's on the that person. Con- cultural context, but then there is this character who is very, is, is quite particular. But she also, she doesn't want to be associated with, because her upbringing was not good. No. Um, she had a lot of trouble. She had a lot of problems. And I think that her wanting to distance herself from being Australian was more to do with the fact that she was ashamed of her own past. Mm-hmm. So she generalized that to being pa- ashamed of being mm. Australian. Yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, people are ashamed of being from any- anywhere and people are ashamed of being almost anything. Okay. Yes. Um, also in, okay, what was I, what else do I have to say about Saving Mr. Banks? I'm looking through my review now because we've gotten so off track that I can't even remember. No, I'm sorry. Uh, the flashback stuff. That's right. We were talking about Ruth Wilson, who yeah. is from Luther, by the way, the TV oh, okay. show yeah, with yeah, Idris yeah, yeah, that's what, I mean, I've never seen her in anything. I've only seen gifts of her in Tumblr. Me neither. And, I t- and that's why I didn't recognize her. Someone that we follow on Tumblr calls her, um, every tag of hers is Ruth Wilson's eyebrows. So whenever I was watching her, I was like, oh, look, it's Ruth Wilson's eyebrows. Oh. Yeah, she has like very interesting, severe eyebrows. I did like Rachel Griffiths in the flashback. Yep. But, and, and, you know, everything's recreated really beautifully. Yeah. Like they, apart from, they were like, this is in Maryborough in Australia. And I was like, really? Because that looks like LA. Well, yeah, but it's meant to. Because that's the whole idea. You you start with some palm trees and you're supposed to be like, oh, in LA. And then they come down and you're yeah. like, but that was not, I think that was kind of a slightly heavy handed idea at the yes. start. I yeah. thought that was, yeah. Um, apart from that, they, I mean, they recreate all the outfits, like watching Ruth Wilson and carrying the baby and in her like severe sort of the outfits that she mm. was in. And I was just like that poor woman every time that there was a shot of her. She has so much to deal with. And she, because she isn't maybe the most affectionate, her pa- her kids don't really like her. So here yeah. she is like putting everything into trying to look after them. And she's got a baby to deal with and two older girls to deal with. And they've moved out into the mm. heat, into the middle of nowhere. Yep. She's got a drunk husband and she's got so much on her plate yeah. and she's getting no sort of love or respect out of any of it. No, um, well, she suffers from the... Um thing that single parents often suffer from where you, she's the only one doing any work. She's mm. the only one setting boundaries and discipline and doing any kind of parenting with these girls. Dad comes in like a, like an uncle almost and plays with them every so often while he's, you know, when he's on a high and he's not drunk and he's off work. He comes in, he plays, he's fun. He's not, he doesn't have to be like parent cop in the way mum does. Yeah, I agree with he doesn't have to be parent cop. I got the feeling that he, A, really loved his daughters. Uh, no doubt. Um, absolutely adored. Um, he calls P.L. Travers Ginty. Yeah. And he abs- he clearly absolutely adores Ginty. I mean, really loves her. And uh-huh. he wants to give her what he thinks is to support her creativity and her outlook on the world. Mm. I mean, he obviously, before he gets sick, really sick, yeah. Um. He obviously really, really cares about her. But also I have a feeling that he was around a little bit more than like, because he only goes to work and she even goes into work to see him a couple, like once a week or something like that to have yeah. ice cream. So I don't think that 
to me, it didn't seem like she was, he was absent so much as like, but not a good parent in the sense of he didn't set boundaries. Yeah, and, he didn't... and I think it happens in families where, and it's yeah. often mum who, who does the boundary setting and the, like the hard stuff of parenting of bedtime and yeah. teeth brushing and eat vegetable stuff. And this horrible contradiction, people actually, you know, the, the kids might be resentful of the person who's actually working the hardest for their welfare. Yeah. Which is, is, is very sad. And I, and I, her being suicidal, I'm not even sure that's mental illness as much as a reaction, a natural yeah. reaction to a really shitty circumstance. Yeah, I was at that point, I was like, I get where she's coming from. But also she, the, that scene was amazing. It was just, she was so out of it. And then she comes back for the daughter was really, really mm. sweet. Yeah. I mean, the, the flashbacks were so melodramatic and they kind mm. of ruined a lot of the good things yeah. Like there was this one scene in particular where there was the, the the bank scene, which was supposed to be sort of the high point of the dramatic part, where they sing the song that they sing in the um the bank in the movie. Tuppence. Fina- financial f- something bank? Fiduciary? Financial, yes, fiduciary. <laughs> That's Fiduciary one. bank. Um, and so there, there they are singing their hearts out mm. and it keeps flashing back to drunk Colin Farrell daddy on the stage. Um, and that kind of, that felt so forced to me. I didn't really enjoy that at I, all. I got really upset with myself for being upset at those scenes. <laughs> and I got upset because I had a drunk for a dad and I didn't have a very good childhood. So I get upset at that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I wasn't getting upset because of her. I was getting upset because of me. But I got annoyed that I was upset with it. Yeah, because it's manipulative. I, I feel embarrassed because I feel like I was manipulated into that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get that. And I was actually the scene that moved me the most, and this is another scene I really liked parts of, is when he when Walt Disney shows up at PL Travis's house. Oh yeah. And he gives her a speech about the imagination mm-hmm. and about how writers sort of correct things in their own life through their imagination and how um Mary Poppins was there for all of these children when they were going to sleep and you know on screens everywhere they'll save Mr. Banks. That speech was gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, that was like, that really touched me because I love stories and, you know, all that sort of thing. And, and that's why Agreed. we love movies. And it was such a really spot on mm-hmm. idea. And it feels like a lot of the rest of the movie didn't live up to that. Mm. But that was pure gold. That I was ag- gorgeous. completely agree. Now, um, there's somebody online, I can't remember who right now, is said about this film that this is a perfect film for the Oscar season because it's all about the magic of making movies, the same as Argo and um, a whole bunch of which one last year and a whole bunch of other uh, the artist the artist is another one yeah which are all like these movies about the joy and wonder of storytelling and movie making and movie magic right but this is nowhere near as good as Argo or the artist I know you haven't seen the artist but no. to me yeah I and and also I'm a diplomat's kid so you know I went crazy for Argo but the artist was really really beautiful and this was occasionally beautiful and frequently too much. Mm. Too much sentiment and too much of its own, full of its own yeah, yeah, yeah. self worth mm-hmm. and importance. Particularly the Disney stuff, I think, like the way that she came around on the Mickey Mouse doll that she had and stuff. That kind of that like, did not ring true. Yeah, the bit it where hurt she cuddles, my teeth. She cuddles a Mickey Mouse doll at one point because at the start there's this wonderful scene where she arrives at her hotel room and Disney has set up her room with all these stuffed animals and baskets of treats and Disney-fied the place and she's just shoving everything in the cupboard to get it out of the way because ugh, and she yeah. makes Mickey sit in the corner. But then, yeah, and then at the, there's a point where she's 
finding it really, really hard. She's having flashbacks in her dreams while she's there and blah, blah, blah. And she cuddles up to Mickey and it's just that didn't quite ring true either. No. Mm. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. Like there's yeah. – they tip over the edge too much right. from like balancing. And the, really the only thing to pull us back from the incredible sentimentality is Emma Thompson. Mm-hmm. And she is really good in this. I mean she has this character down to a T, you know what I mean? She's mm. the the – the um speech and the mannerisms and the walk and all of that stuff is really good. Um, and you absolutely get a sense of at least what the movie's P.L. Travers is like, mm-hmm. you know. Um, she's wonderful. But that's all we have. Everything else is that kind of sugar sweet mm. stuff. And that only really rings true for me with her driver. Yep. And he has this disabled daughter and that was lovely. There was also this sense when she tells him about other people who had disabilities that she's kind of telling him about herself as well. Well, it's that, and and you and I both read it, her character as being possibly autistic. Mm. Um, I, and and I, and I do apologize. Or on I'm the not spectrum. trying to make a diagnosis here. What I'm saying is that she has some kind of social disability. I'm not trying to suggest that she is autistic. So please, if you're an autistic listener, don't be writing in and saying you don't know what you're talking about. I know I don't know what I'm talking about. What I'm suggesting is that she's somebody who has particular social disability where she's just not good at empathising with people or understanding other humans very well. Well, it's more like she just doesn't – yeah, there's certain points at which it seems like she just doesn't understand people's feelings. Like mm. she doesn't really – she has to work to do that. Um, mm. And Ralph kind of breaks through that a bit. But she also – there's other things she Ralph has, like – driver, by the, the way. The driver. Oh, yeah. So she has a dri- limo driver called Ralph, played by Paul Giamatti, who is really, really good in this. Um, exactly. And he's very optimistic, but not in that kind of cloying, sweet way. Mm. He's optimistic in a more realistic way. And I love that bit about how he was always concerned with the weather because if it was nice and sunny, his girl can go outside and play yeah. or sit outside in the grass and stuff. And so that really sort of – wrong true for me because I work with a lot of kids with disabilities and things like that and when I used to do those kinds of jobs I was always obsessed with the weather too because mm. if it was going to rain I was like oh god it's going to be the worst day because everybody's going to be inside and they're going to be unhappy and when it's sunny you're like yay we can take everybody outside and go play so yeah I totally that rang true mm. for me but she has um obsessive behaviors as well yeah like the no pairs thing and she keeps building these little houses and she has um so she has like obsessive repetitive behaviors. Yeah, well the pairs thing is supposedly explained by the father. The pairs thing was such an overreaction as well. Yeah. Like it's not just she doesn't like them, it's she throws them in the pool because yeah. she dislikes them so much. So it is that kind of mm. not being able to cope with mm. when she doesn't like something. Yes. You know what I mean? Like she has uh-huh. to storm out, she has to Yeah, and I feel like in at least the character in as it is portrayed in this film and again, I don't I'm not sure anyone's ever gotten to the bottom of P.L. Travers, the real character. In the tiny, tiny amount of reading I did, all I can find is that she was very bohemian, lived a quite an interesting life, but was also a real grump and lived to a very old age, but not in any kind of, you know, not surrounded by family or anything like that or, or a whole lot of people who loved her. And I she's an, I think she, she's a tough nut to crack and they've done the best they can with the limited material they've got and they're blessed with a wonderful actress who does an amazing job. They also have they also make her very um sympathetic. Yep. Like for all that she's difficult and you know she's making their lives difficult, she's really sympathetic and you feel for her not because it's just because of the flashbacks, 
not just because you know her life was hard because like yeah we know her life was hard you know it yeah. really hammers that point home and the little girl annie rose buckley who plays young ginty young pl mm. travis is lovely she does she's just gorgeous and very very talented but at the same time you know it's it's emma thompson's movie and she's the one who has to make adult pl travis um, sympathetic and likable mm. and she does such a good job of that um and the film does a good job of making it you know making but you identify with her in spite of being difficult and some maybe somebody that you wouldn't get along with yeah there's i one of the scenes i really enjoyed is walt is with the uh songwriters and the screenwriter and he says i've fought this battle from her side yeah oh, um why didn't he say that to her yeah well exactly and it was very revealing because he talks about how when he he was a kid with he had Mickey Mouse and somebody wanted to buy Mickey Mouse off him. They were offering him more money than he'd ever had, and he knew in his heart that that's not what he wanted, and he wanted to keep hang on to this character for dear life, and he was as stubborn as anything. That was a really really revealing thing about him. I and yes, why didn't she say that to him? That is a really good point. He, yeah, he said because that to her, sorry. because this is the thing that got me is that you like Walt Disney in all the scenes where he's not with her, and that apart from you know the bit at the end which was somewhat humanizing but obviously very much brushing over all of the issues Walt Disney had but like you feel his sympathy for her and his affection for her when he's not with her but whenever he's with her he's being manipulative and annoying and like I was so on her side in all of the scenes with the two of them because he just kept pushing her and disrespecting her and he never said I was there as well. I understand where you're coming from. He just goes, "Oh, I like Mary Poppins too." Not until yeah, not until that very end scene, which is a scene that's entirely invented because nobody knows whatever happened between the two of them. They did meet one on one, but nobody knows. And I was reading an interview with Tom Hanks who said, "Yeah, I reckon he went in and was like, "Listen, bitch, we're just going to get this done. You're going to sign this over. You've got no money, nothing and no prospect of anything else coming in." You need this more than I need this. But anyway, that he and his, See, his theory is that it, he was a lot more hard assed. Yeah. And I think it was important to show him being a bit of a dick with her because it showed Walt being the hard ass that he was. Yes. Because but among his not, staff, he's freaking revered. It's not that. It's not that. Like, I understand doing it some of the time. That's fine. I don't understand why he didn't just say to her what he said to them. Like, I know, even if it wouldn't have gotten her to, to agree, and even if the rest of the time you see him being a real hard-ass with her, that's fine. But, like, that was the crux of it, right? Mm. That's the crux of it, and he doesn't say it to her. No. So it's weird. Even in that final scene where he's all about, oh, you know, talking about his own tough childhood and how he overcame it, he still doesn't mention the fact that when he was a young creator with a, a valuable property and... Because he's still manipulating her yeah. in that scene, even though that speech is gorgeous. And that actually kind of rings true to me that he's still manipulating her, even when he's mm. saying things that are striking home for us. I like that. But I still don't understand why he didn't just say to her, I have also been in this position. I understand exactly, like, I've literally been you. Yeah, I don't understand why he didn't point. say it either. It doesn't make any sense. And it's it's one of the better scenes for humanizing him because even though this is a Disney film and it's Tom Hanks who's Mr. America and all the rest of it, you still can get you still get the idea that Walt, Walt Disney was no doormat, and that he not was, just no doormat he was. You don't build an empire that big by being nice to everybody. Yeah, I get that. It's not just that that it, it's. I guess 
maybe because we came from her point of view, he is really disrespectful. Like, it's it, he's patronising. Oh, he's atrocious to her. He calls her Pam, straight up. He's patronising, and he's patronising not just to her, but also he's not the only one who's patronising towards her. Nope. Um, her agent is patronising towards her. People really talk down to her like she's a child, which I think also kind of struck home, I guess, um, which might be partly because she's a woman and partly because she has all these mm. sort of difficult relations with people. Instead of, like, respecting her, most of them talk down to her or just pander to her instead of talking directly to her. And I think that's one of the reasons why I liked BJ Novak's character, because he just basically cuts through and talks directly to her without being disrespectful No, to say why are you like this doesn't matter right he's like you can't teach pigeons a uh, pigeons penguins to dance they're going to be animated no he doesn't it. say that is it is it he says no it's it? jason schwartzman and he does oh, it by accident guy. and yeah, then he's embarrassed he's by animated. it yeah DJ novak's um, character probably would have but then he gets <laughs> gets sent told away and sent out of the room for it mm. which i thought was kind of neat but also at the same time like he's the only one who actually sort of stands up to her yeah with that and that that's the thing that's why it was so interesting to me to see all that working sort of relationship thing is that there are ways to stand up to people without being disrespectful and rude right. to them. Whereas so like to say, little... why does it matter that this tiny thing isn't exactly the way that you saw it is perfectly valid and it's not disrespectful, but it's, you know. That's the most important question. Why is it so important that he doesn't have a mustache? Like really, in yeah. the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. And, and somebody needed to ask her that, but he gets sent away for it. Yeah, yeah, I, but that was that was that's kind of see. Funny. Actually, I loved that because that was so kind of real. Yeah, you know, and like she still won't put up with it, even though he's asked that. Like that's a all... perfectly legit question. Yeah, and I, the rest I, of them are like little kids. They're like they just roll their eyes at her and like, look, once we get the rights, we'll just fix this in post. Mm-hmm. Basically, everything she argues about. You, we know, having seen the movie, that it all goes through exactly the way that Walt Disney wanted it to. Mm-hmm. None of the stuff that she suggested even makes it in. No. She said no animation, there's animation. She said he has to be clean-shaven, he goes through with a moustache. She says, like, they don't collaborate with her either. They just do whatever they want, except for the let's go fly a kite scene, which is why it works so well, I think, is because they sort of tried to figure out like she said it's not about saving the children and they realized worked with that exactly which is important and that's why that you know so that's the only sort of collaborative bit that actually makes sense and works um it's a kind of an interesting message there though because she gets so she's so hung up on really stupid little details like mustaches and red and whatnot that she forgets to mention the important stuff she's so busy fussing about over minor details that when it comes time to talk about big important thematic things yeah they're she, more likely to it's a boy who cried wolf like if you spend all your time worrying about whether you say number 17 or 17 then people when you when it comes time to set to talk about some big issue people have gotten so sick of your shit they just don't care anymore i think there's a little there's a moment when they do when she does let's go fly a kite and in the end of it she goes no the proper english would be let us go f- and yeah. fly a kite and then she tries to sing it and then she's, she's like never mind we can do it your way and that yeah. was really cute and that was nice. that was clearly her getting over that and then you know once she sold the rights you see her at the end and she's in colors and she's you know relaxed and mm. she's a different sort of person because she's finally kind of let go of this thing that she's been holding on to mm. which is a lovely message as well about you know letting go of the past and and yeah. understanding that you know so, so the uh, so what i think here the redemption arc that goes on in this story is a really lovely story yeah but again i'm not sure it rings necessarily true i don't know if it has to since this is a movie about a movie a movie i don't know that it has to but 
the no. problem isn't that. The problem is there's still this sense, like if they had done it perfectly, I would probably be really, I would really like this movie. But there's this sense of something underneath it that's rotten, <laughs> you know, like. I see. To me, that's how it felt. Like they just kept piling on the sentimentality and the sweet grandfatherly Walt Disney, even though he had, you know, flaws to try and humanize him a bit. They They kind of piled all that on and on and on and on. And there was this sense that something underneath it wasn't right. You don't have to have it exactly the way it happened. No. You've got Inglorious Bastards and all those revisionist histories that are coming out and, you know, Abraham Lincoln, Zombie Hunter and all that sort of thing. Mm. Vampire Hunter. But yeah, there's all this stuff that you can do. You don't have to get it perfectly right. But you you have to get the soul of it right, I guess. Yeah, and you don't The heart of it right. Got. And to yeah. me, that didn't ring true. I, I didn't I, I didn't quite feel like I'd been cheated like that but I did walk away from it feeling a bit not quite right yeah and and I don't know why and it, but I, I feel like it, it was made up of a lot of lovely elements like a really well put together story of redemption and a wonderful lead performance and some really interesting little snippets into the world in which it was made but I don't and and, and obviously it's a movie and so it's not meant to be literally true or taken literally or any of that stuff so I mm, yeah, I, I still had an enjoyable enough experience watching it because it takes you right through a proper catharsis of a redemption story. But it's... Hmm. Yeah, it seems like you feel the same. But that Let's Go Fly a Kite scene, boy, was that great. Yeah, it was lovely. Um, Absolutely. Just a gorgeous scene and this wonderful, like, it's so well done and you start seeing her tapping her toes and everybody's just in it and, like, then Bradley Whitford comes over and offers her, her his hand and you're just like, oh, <laughs> it's so beautiful like yes. and they can't sing and they can't dance and they're not good at acting or doing the accents but it's perfect and that's sort of the magic of movie making I guess yeah. so that was that's like it has a couple of really good scenes really perfect scenes but overall mm. it's just okay I also think um it was something I noticed there's one scene very late at night with one of the Shermans and I can't remember which one I think it's um, B.J. Novak. He's like really late trying to work over some songs. And the other one, Schwartzman. <laughs> B.J. Novak is asleep on the couch and Schwartzman's right. doing And they're up songs. late working on something. And Walt overhears them and comes into the office. And I thought, and he and he's kind of scared because he's, the big boss has walked into the office. And I thought, mm. that's why you cast Tom Hanks in that role. Because he's got that level of gravitas and respect among other actors that when he walks into the room, the other actors are a little bit scared because they're like, oh, God, I hope, I'm, I, hope I do good while Tom's here. I don't want to don't want to mess it up. Yeah, that was a perfect scene too, actually, really because then that's the moment when he says the, the Mickey Mouse thing. Mm. Um, it's also the song that he's singing is Tuppence a Bag, which is beautiful even if the worst singer in the world is singing yeah. it. I mean, that's just... I, I, they they were fine. Like they were, their voices were perfectly fine to carry through the job they had to do. Yes, I know, but you know what? I, like they they were perfectly fine because they weren't perfect. They were they sounded like songwriters who were you know it was it was exactly spot on. But it I feel like there were quite a few really well done scenes. But then there were other scenes like when he took her to Disneyland that weren't as good. Mm. The flashbacks weren't as good. The um, I was too busy getting excited about Disneyland because I just love the recreation of. 1961 Disneyland was super and exciting. And there's this really cute bit where um, Paul Giamatti is driving her through the gates and he's, of course, he's like this embodiment of Mickey Mouse. He's got the, he even wears a little mouse badge and he drives through the gates and says, oh boy! <laughs> he's just like, yay! That was great! Yeah, and he's, yeah. He was very good. Those scenes actually worked really well for me. Any between scenes the two of between them. the two of them, even the heavy-handed ones were beautiful. Just 
beautiful. Him talking about his daughter was beautiful. At the beginning when he is just determined to get along with her, even when she just is determined yeah, not to get along with him. He is the physical embodiment of the House of Mouse, right? Yeah. That's, that's, this is the whole thing about how I love Disneyland, even though I'm the most cynical bitch going around. Like I, because you walk into that place and every single person, from the janitor to the person who gives you your fries to the person who helps you on a ride, their whole job and the reason they're hired and what they're trained to do is to just be completely cheerful in the face of everything else and to constantly bombard you with that kind of happiness and the the innate goodness of the world and that he's like this physical embodiment of Mickey Mouse of Disneyland of Disney yeah it's it's a way of uh I guess it's this sense of optimism and positivity and like happiness that isn't I, I guess bombarding you is uh, smothering you with it. Mm. You know what I mean? Like he is so. Well, he's, but he's also a person who lives in the real world. Yes. Which is, I guess, the important part of his character. He lives in the real world, but he chooses to take the optimistic view. Yeah. That's just very, very Disney. That's that's a Disney And he's employee. so grateful when she gives him the autograph and things. Like, it's it's mm. that kind of, there's this difference between being optimistic and also forcing it on other people. He doesn't do that to her. No, he does. He knows um, when to shut up. And, exactly. Yeah. And he knows, but he also, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, there's this kind of sense of, there's this difference between somebody who is aggressively optimistic mm. and someone who is personally optimistic, who is like a genuinely sort of good, cheerful, optimistic person within himself. Mm. And that eventually makes you feel good too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Rather and than them going, what... you should be optimistic. Why no, no, aren't no, no, you optimistic? No, 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 no. That, but that's the thing. That's what yeah. Disney cast does. Everyone's called cast members at Disneyland. Don't ask me why. Even if you're a janitor, but you, even if you are a janitor, and that's and because I, they kind of have to play a role it's in their yeah. role is not just janitor. It's janitor who's cleaning up at Disneyland, which is the happiest place on earth. Yeah, he he is Disney. That guy, Paul Giamatti's character. Yes, exactly. He and he's Disney the more good, than Walt. Yeah, he's the good side of it, and I think they were they definitely glossed over the bad side of it. But oh god, I was so angry for PL Travers when I found when she found out that the penguins were animated because they kept that from her. Yeah. Not because they did it. I can like it makes perfect sense in the movie to do mm. it. They never told her it makes perfect sense in the movie to do it. They never said to her, "Look, it really is important yeah. that we do." And you know, when she said no animation, he should have said, "Look, I agree with you, but we've got this scene with some dancing penguins." And as you well know, we can't exactly bring half a dozen penguins to California and train them to dance. What we think we're going to do is blah, 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 animation. I know you said no animation, but... but like, and the people will be real. and Bring it and, in up front. Yes, like, exactly. Yeah. That I was so angry for her when they did that because they were manipulating her. Yeah. And the thing is, like, even though you like Bradley Whitford's character, he's manipulating her as well. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was so angry for her, is that disrespect that just is across the board for her. And no, so no wonder. But Ralph does. Yeah, no wonder she is so insistent on pulling rank all the time. Right, and that's, mm. yeah, I was also thinking about this with Donna Noble recently and all sorts of female characters that people don't like mm. and people call bitches. And it's like, yes, but this is a person who is used to having to scream at the world and tell them what to do and be that person, be up in your face because nobody respects them right. or listens to them because otherwise. this character, this grump who is complete a complete social idiot, Gets played by men all the time. People love them. Mm. They win Emmys. They play, they're called Sheldon Cooper and they play like those. That kind of character is what she is. Yeah. 
Sherlock Holmes is this kind of character. Yeah. This complete, like, really smart person who's a complete grump and has great difficulty dealing with humans. And it gets played by men all the time and is beloved. Yeah. When it's when it's played by a woman, oh god, she's horrible and difficult and prickly and bitchy. I had exactly the same. Yeah. And I love that they, this movie has her. This is actually one of my favorite things in the movie is that this they made movie a movie is, about a woman like this, and not just made she's a movie the hero. about it, but she's also they make you identify with her and like her, mm-hmm. in spite of the fact that you know, like you, yeah, that's yeah. what they do with the male characters all the time. They mm-hmm. just give you those little grains every so often of something where you where you have to identify with them and then you like them you know and that's how it works because in real life more people are grumpy and curmudgeonly than are naturally optimistic the thing is more you know there are all these kinds of different people in the world Mm. and they're all people they're all coming from this place of having human feelings and wanting to be happy and wanting their parents approval and all of that stuff yep there's all kinds of different ways that that comes out in people in the world mm-hmm. and we should be able to see all different types in women and still be able to identify with them yep. instead of just being written off as being a bitch or being yeah. you know prickly or being difficult yeah because and for all Sherlock problems, is so difficult yeah. but we love him but we love him so why can't we love PL Travers who is so difficult and and for all its faults yeah you, that is the most important thing about this movie yeah mm. Yeah, I really enjoyed that part of it. That uh, the most important things in this movie are that and watching Badly Ripford dance around because <laughs> it made me so happy. Yeah, I was saying I nobody else in the in the cinema seemed to be even reacting, and I'm sitting there like giggling my head off at watching him like leap in the air. Well, it was so exciting because he's he's so known for being a grump. Yeah, and he's like dancing and singing, and when he has to read the script, he does the voices. He does. There's a scene where he and the uh, script assistant. Uh, playing the children, so they're kneeling down, yeah. doing little kid voices, and they're so good. It's, it's another so thing, actually. Oh, yeah. I know we're wrapping up. But, no, no, no. It's okay. Keep um, I think again because of my you know working with kids thing. There's this absolute lack of children and lack of children's perspective in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like apart from Ginty, yep. There's this like in the modern stuff. There's a total lack of. Apart from just talking about kids. Everyone kind of, has kids and talks about them. You never see any of them. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I thought maybe the, the, the disabled daughter might come in, you know. I and, was hoping she would, actually. And get to see something or something like that. There's this total lack of a child's perspective. And you feel like you're just like, well, give her some sense of, like, the childlike wonder that people see this with. And, mm. you know, I, I that was baffling to me, actually. There's no kid. Like, mm. I thought a perfect scene for this movie would be a kid coming up and being like, I love Mary Poppins. Will you please sign my book or something well, yeah, to well, give like, a child's? Because it's it's a movie for kids. She wrote the books for kids. Yeah, you know. And, and there's, I know she's not could, there to save the kids, but she's there to save Dad for the kids. Right. right? And there's a there, you could have like, uh, Walt has a like a secretary who's an older woman. You could bring in one like she could bring her grandchildren to work one day, and they they hear the songs and they start singing. Like how you could very easily do yeah, it. Yeah, I felt like this movie was kind of disrespectful to children given that it is a disney movie about a movie made for children and a book written for children yeah. and yet it gives no credence it's rated to P- children's voices it's rated pg but it's very much a grown-ups movie yeah it gives no sort of and and that i know children aren't a minority or anything like that but that's what they felt like in this movie they just you see a few at disneyland yep and then there's that really sort of cynical moment where walt disney is giving out pre-signed cards which actually i loved because well, it I- was so 
That is so him, except that I know that people do that. There's one in the room somewhere. I can't oh, – right there on the board. Not that anyone can see that. But, yeah, in this room there's a Nathan Fillion signed card. And what it has on the back is, I'm really sorry I wasn't able to stop and chat. I was busy, busily yeah. trying to get from one event to another. And blah, blah, blah. Like he's, he's hands him out. So I was – yeah. But it's I, totally – Walt doesn't want to have to stop and engage. He's just like hand these out. I understand it. Yeah. But the way that it's shown in the movie is that kind of – like, oh, it's the big business kind of wheel yeah. turning. And I, I liked that. Like, mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah, I understand. But it's also personal... a good character moment. Yeah, it yeah. is a good character moment that he doesn't actually have time for the people who like his stuff. Or who uh, financially support all his stuff. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, Yeah, anyway, I guess we should wind up uh, your score for the film. I gave Saving Mr. Banks three and a half stars. Likewise, three and a half stars. So this week on in the show notes, I've actually got some background reading on P.L. Travers. If anyone is interested, I'll put some links up about a little bit about her life and some of the background around this particular story and stuff like that. So you can actually read about what's different and what's the same. And I might try and get some on Walt Disney too. Yeah, we, we'll do a bit of that. So that's what we will put up on the show notes and on the Tumblr this week. Thank you very much for listening to the Silver Screen Queens. If you want to read any of those show notes, they'll be available on silverscreenqueens.com. If you want to read Katie's review of Saving Mr. Banks, you can do that on her blog, silverscreenqueen.wordpress.com. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at screen underscore queens, or you can come hang out with us on Tumblr, which is tumblr.silverscreenqueens.com. Thanks very much for listening. Bye. Bye.